Welcome to the Hymn Southern California podcast. This is your host, Paul Butler. We have with us today a very special guest, the enigmatic and indomitable Tracy Donegan. Tracy is currently the CIO at Martin Luther King Community Hospital. And before becoming CIO, Tracy had a critical leadership role at MLK as a consultant there, helping with the Greenfield build out, deployment, licensing, and accreditation of the hospital from 2012 to 2015. Then in uh, 2017, the hospital received the Distinguished Award of Healthcare's Most Wired, and in 2018, it achieved HIMSS Level 7, which was an outstanding achievement in such a short time after opening. It's the highest level of recognition within the HIMSS EMR adoption model. Tracy has served in a variety of leadership roles in the healthcare industry and in consulting. And prior to joining MLK, she was an AVP and partner in Cognizance Healthcare uh, Provider Consulting Practice. She also served uh, previously in executive positions with Opria Healthcare and Medtronic and spent several years consulting with Bearing Point, formerly KPMG Consulting. She has her BS in accounting and her master's in health administration from Cornell. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you, Paul. So Tracy, you took over your current post uh, from the first CIO of the hospital, Sajid Ahmed, uh, who has also been a guest on this program, and our listeners should download that if they get a chance. That really is an excellent interview. But uh, your first experience at MLK, Tracy, is really the startup story. And I think I'd like to start there. You were helping to lead the build out of a new hospital. It was with a defined amount of money in a unique public-private partnership. There was no existing operator, no existing employees of any substantial amount to leverage any kind of a blueprint. There were uh, only a very few C-level employees, as a matter of fact. So um, the MLK build-out and licensing was really a daunting task. I know because I was there too. What did you go through? How did you manage this? And what kind of things did you learn? Well, it was a daunting task for sure. Um, when I joined the core team, I took a leap of faith, and we all did, um, not for the daunting task ahead, but really for faith in our ability to be successful. I mean, sure, there were times of great stress and challenge. We pushed ourselves beyond our intellectual limits, and, and we pushed our vendors to do the same. Um, basically, we did what it took to get the job done. I mean, picture this, a girl who wears four inch heels and dresses to the nines every day, sheds her heels to make a run to Home Depot to buy screws and light bulbs three days before licensure. I, I had never been to the store before and I got that done. I mean, these were the kind of things that we did. Um, but if we had more time, I would talk more of the technology we implemented and why um, we had decades of experience and wanted to bake into the design what we had learned. I mean, those were the best practices. You would have to undo it or other organizations before making it better. Having a blank slate was just an opportunity of a lifetime that we all jumped on. But my final thought, I think my most important takeaway is when you have a team that's strongly united um, behind a particular purpose, like we all did, right? We all had to be successful. Um, you can achieve extraordinary things. And that was the one thing I learned 
Right. You were uh, an executive at many other larger companies, and, and Bearing Point was no small firm either in the consulting business, and you consulted with a lot of major companies. So going from that to literally to a startup operation, what was that like, and how did you have to rethink? How did you have to get out of the box to get done what we needed to get done for the startup? You know, I guess basically... It boils down to you just had to get the job done. You know what I mean by that? You know, you have to build something. Um, you don't have anything to start with, but you're just driven by the fact that it needs to be done. And and that's how we did it. I mean, it, it, I know it sounds it's more simple than it really was, but if you don't go in with that attitude, um, you know, just putting away what you your expertise is and using your common sense and building out the the hospital. So you had a background, you had a lot of formal training and methodology. Did you just uh, take all that uh, consulting background and just throw it out the window? I mean, how did you how did you have to change your style in approaching to getting this done? Yeah, you really had to throw out the basic methodology out the window. Um, you know, there were times where we've come into some unusual problems um, that, you know, you wouldn't typically find in a normal implementation. And I think in consulting, it's very easy to adapt to that type of environment because you have to think on your feet. Um, you have to make use of, of what little you have to get the job done. I know, Paul, you've been there before, right? You don't have perfect information going into a assignment. So you take what you have and you, um, and you use it um, to the best that you can to get the work done. I think, I mean, for example, you know, we didn't have any people that could guide us in our system selection, right? We had, to, we had to write all those requirements ourselves. We had to put ourselves into their shoes, write those requirements and choose on their behalf. And, and a lot of the times we had to think for them. Um, you know, when we're putting the solutions together, we had to think of everything that's needed to get into this, the solution. You know, all the fine detail that um, you know, person in operations wouldn't normally think about. So you literally had no employees to lean on, no policies and procedures. This all had to be written, right? right. And so you you essentially designed a hospital operation collectively with lots of other consultants and specialists in the different areas. It wasn't completely um, off the cuff, but it was something that you really. Um, had to create, and it all had to work and integrate together in order for the hospital to a get licensed and, and to b uh, get uh, to function. Where, where do you have any thoughts about the the complete build out of an application portfolio from scratch? How did you go about conceiving and getting that uh, integrated uh, entirely from? Uh, nothing into something that would support an entire application. It's not just the EMR, although that was an important part of the selection, right? It was a lot of other applications too. How did that come about? Well, when you say it like that, I mean, it really sounds like a daunting task and it was. 
I think what we did to make it simple and, and digestible was that we started off with some guiding principles uh, even before we embarked on the strategy, right? We wanted to keep it simple because, you know, when we, when we would open the hospital, we wouldn't know, um, we didn't want to make it difficult to maintain. So one of our guiding principles was to keep our application portfolio as simple as possible with as little um, number of vendors as possible. That was one. The other was implementing it um, vanilla, uh, such that we would leverage the inherent design in, in the uh, electronic medical record. Um, we leaned on technology um, based on what we've seen didn't work in the past, um, emphasizing quality and um, care coordination. These were the elements of the design of our application portfolio on our devices that we wanted to enforce. We wanted to make sure that that, the, that was behind a lot of our design. So I think from starting from there helped us um, build that portfolio. So uh, after the hospital was finished and licensed, you left to do uh, consulting work elsewhere. And then you came back, uh, it was two or three years later, I think, uh, as the CIO. And one advantage is you knew the place and, and most people that were still there knew you. But how did your perception of what you had designed change uh, after you now saw your creation I was actually in operation? And suddenly you're in charge of it. How did you, what did you learn from that? Since you, you, most consultants don't have the opportunity to actually design something, build something, and then operate it. They, they usually either do the front end or they're operators on the back end. What was your, like, did you have any epiphany or anything that, that, that really changed your thinking after you became essentially the operator of everything IT? You know, when I, I came back, I felt like I never left. Um, you know, I slipped right back in. It was like I was coming home to a family. But the one thing that stuck out is that our design held. I think that, you know, we made really good decisions. And um, we made good decisions about our application portfolio, the vendors that we chose, um, the way we approached the 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 health IT governance um, and staffing. I mean, those really held and they, they held to this day. Um, you know, there were a few solutions that were giving us heartache when we, we were building the hospital um, and, and standing up the HR. And, and those actually, those few um, problems kind of still were hanging on. But for the most part, our, our, I was very proud to, to see that our design had held. So you once said that it was not about what we do for our patients. It's about what they need from us. Uh, what, what do they need from you? And, and how has that changed your priorities and your focus? Well, I can't take credit for that phrase. It was uh, Dr. John Fisher, our chief medical officer, that um, stated that you know during one of our strategy sessions. And it's been an important lesson for us. Um, our the way we go about finding the needs of our patients is by going out in the community um, and getting to know them. And one of the things, you know, an important lesson that we had learned um, 
was our medical group had been experiencing just a, a very significant percentage of no-shows, 55% to be exact. Um, and we thought it was a transportation problem. We went out in the community and, and did some research. Um, actually, uh, Dr. Jorge Reno led this uh, led this research, and they found that it, it yeah sure it was a you know part of it was transport transportation, but the problem was actually multifaceted, multi-layered. I mean, there were, there were just many barriers uh, from from you know, that were keeping the patient away from and missing those appointments, childcare, not wanting, not having a way to get off work and so forth. Um, and so that's how we go about, you know, determining what the needs are of our patients. And, you know, access is a big problem for our community. And I, I know from several other communities and and our instinct was right. I, I think our instinct was trying to make it more convenient for our patients uh, to get to our office. And I think this really proved itself out recently with COVID-19. We had implemented um, the ability to, to do a virtual visit, scheduled virtual, virtual visit, like literally in a, in a few days, we had it up and running. It's been 17 days since we've had that running and our 50 and our no show rate has decreased from 55% to less than 7. So I think from from what we learned out in the community really helped us nail um, just the small solution um, and and that impact on our community is going to be great. So we're just starting that journey and I'm very confident that and very excited um, that we're gonna be able to reach our patients and and be able to see them more frequently. What's exciting to me about uh, what's happened at MLK and which you are part of is that there were a lot of naysayers near the beginning because the prior history on that campus was of the old King Drew Hospital, which had had its license pulled. It was notorious as Killer King. It was, um, you basically shut down. It was a county hospital. And the impetus for starting uh, MLK uh, Community Hospital uh, shifted to become a public-private partnership. And a lot of naysayers were saying, what's just going to end like, like King Drew? What's going to be different? And I think the difference was the, that the county said, okay, we're going to stay completely away from the design decisions. We're going to help fund it. Um, there's a foundation that's also going to raise money. And so the adequate money was raised. Uh, we thought to to get the hospital open, but there's a big difference between having agreement and a partnership and actually opening a hospital and conceiving and creating what it would be. And uh, Dr. Bachelor, the CEO there, had said to uh, you, to us, that you know we can have a hospital in a poor neighborhood, but it doesn't have to be a poor hospital. She really set the tone for a high level of performance, and I think. One of the things that you helped achieve was this high level of um, automation and of sophistication and integration that had never been seen before in that community. And it is still an underserved community, right? So so some of the things that you're doing are really uh, expanding quite click, quickly. And I know most hospital CIOs are overloaded with projects. And tell us a little bit about some of the expansion work you're doing in, in the clinical space and some of the many projects you've got you've got going on and how that has really changed over the last couple of years. 
Yeah, I think what it's it's so true. Uh, Dr. Batcher really set the tone for building out the hospital. Um, we didn't want to re just replace uh, what was there. We wanted to build something that the community could be proud of. And you know, it really doesn't matter what neighborhood that you're in. If you're starting from scratch, you're going to want to build um, the best, and you're going to want to put in. Uh, you know, bacon, like I said before, the, the your years of experience um, into that, your wish list, if you will. But now that that's built and we, we filled that gap in the community, we're now focusing more on externally beyond our, our walls. One of the problems that our community has is a deficit of, of approximately 1,200 physicians. And, and we're addressing that gap right now. A few years ago, we had formed a medical group, multi-specialty medical group, and we're starting to really grow that practice. We're on to our third clinic that we just built. We just built out a um, medical office building that actually um, opened um, about 10 days ago. Oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we are still in our startup mode. Um, but the startup now is is on the ambulatory side, uh, which is very important to us. I think that the fact that our emergency visits um, are a lot more than what we had anticipated um, points to the fact that the community is not getting their basic medical care taken care of, and it's not consistent. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about removing the barriers um, to, of access uh, to even the primary care specialty providers. Just that little thing of the virtual visit, I think is gonna make a huge impact. So our focus now is on, is externally, of course, population health, um, addressing social determinants of health uh, in, you know, in our treatment plans. Um, investing in technology that makes it easier for the patient to access us um, and to answer questions. We recently uh, launched a chatbot we're calling Mia. Mia's on our website right now, and um, she is there to answer questions. Uh, right now, she is programmed to answer um, any questions regarding COVID-19 because that's, you know, that's the pandemic we're going through right now, but um, she will be expanded to be more of a triage tool and be sort of our front door to our health system. And the reason why I say a front door is because, you know, no one wants to call a, a, a anywhere, right? You just want to text and get the answer. And I think texting and chatbots is a way to go um, as a way, an easy entry point, if you will, for our community, and that'll get them um, through to our system, answer their questions quickly, and then um, get on to what they need to do, schedule an appointment, see if it's virtual um, physician, and so forth. So those are the things, the kinds of things we're focusing on now. You gave a lecture at Cornell about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I thought was, was curious. It ties into your views on on healthcare today. Can you tell us a little bit about your Cornell graduate, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, first of all, I, I thought it was odd 
for um, a technologist to comment on a, a framework like that. Um, just to, to review for our listeners, Maslow's hierarchy of need, there's five stages. The first is um, satisfying um, physiological needs. The next is safety, all the way up to self-actualization. And that's building that hierarchy of needs. So you can't address the stage two without first addressing stage one and, and so on. Um, and, you know, when I first was asked about it, I thought, well, what does that have to do with healthcare? And then I realized it had everything to do with healthcare. I mean, and, and it's not just about um, the community that we're working in, um, any other under-resourced community. It really applies to everyone. It's human nature. Um, and, and the fact is, is that we, we don't address our health problems until it's severely acute, right? Our, our focus, our top of mind every day is, is our basic needs, um, food, shelter, um, belonging, safety, and, and so forth. Um, and I think that's why it took years for our, our health industry to figure out that, that really you have to address the patient holistically if you're gonna treat their medical issues. And, and that's where we are right now. So in summary, I, you know, Maslow's hierarchy need has everything to do with healthcare because in order to get us to self-actualization, meaning um, being able to self, to maintain and, 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 and treat our condition, we really need to treat um, our underlying needs first. That's so true. And uh, you've gone through so many experiences in and out of the provider space. Actually, you've been in some different industries that are healthcare related. Um, you've also dedicated a lot of time, um, and many people that know you don't even know this, you've volunteered uh, to help mentor graduate students and people who are earlier in their careers. And I've seen you do this over the years, and you've lectured at USC and a number of other campuses in the Cal State system. What advice are you giving to those to just entering healthcare or trying to decide what their career should be and how they should focus. How are you, how are you counseling them? Well, I give them a very simple advice. Um, and that is if you're not on the clinical path, um, you should really be a generalist um, and really focus on building um, core strengths in problem solving, in critical thinking, um, in relationship building, in building collaboration among people, and letting, and letting your sort of career, um, you know, take, uh, take a life, you know, kind of experience the process of, of, of being in your career, the, the, the means upon which you go from point A to point B, rather than focusing on, I wanna be a CIO, um, focus on um, the, the process you get there, um, of how you get there. Um, and that's that's kind of how I approached my career. And, and you know, it, it was successful. I started out as an accountant and somehow landed um, as a CIO. And I've had the most incredible experiences. Um, one, the most incredible of course, building this hospital. But I think if I didn't approach it that way, if I had my head strong on being a uh, CFO, for example, 
I would have not, I would have never gotten to where I have gone. And then the other piece of advice I would give them is to, you know, build your network, but do it thoughtfully and, and, and invest your time in building um, professional relationships. You know, Paul, you and I, we've known each other, what, for 10 years now or more? We won't um, say how many years. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this is a relationship we we um uh, we've met on on location and we've nurtured and kept that relationship over the years and and we're still together we're still helping each other out so and those are meaningful right so uh, just a philosophical question on on how you've seen you've known a lot of cios over the years too before you became one yourself how do you think the role is changing. So if somebody does aspire to become a CIO in the future, do you think it, they have to be a technologist or a people person or a problem solver? What are some of the most important attributes that you think come with the job? I think that, you know, definitely um, solving problems, being strategic, um, being a people person, a collaborator. Usually when you're a CIO, you're, you pretty much, you're in the position of the organization where you have a good global view of the organization. You've got a global view of what technology is being used. You've got a global view of processes. Um, you have a global view on, on the strategy and, and, the, and the, the industry and technology in general. And so much of, of everything is driven by technology. So you're in a perfect strategic role so I look to um, to those skills as being important, um, being in, inspiring others to um, think out of the box, uh, to um, encourage them to come up with their own ideas and and being in, innovated themselves. You know, I, I am an innovation officer, but that doesn't mean I'm the one in the organization that is the innovative person. I think it it's it's more you know, I encourage others to be innovative and I help them along the way. I partner with them to solve their problems or to rethink how they do things. That's interesting. Tracy, thank you for joining us. It's been a very interesting interview and I wanted to uh, express my appreciation and admiration for the tremendous work that you're doing. And I wish you many more years of success. I know you love MLK and you love the job that you're doing. So best of luck going into the future. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to the Him SoCal podcast. This is Paul Butler, your host. Our sound engineer has been Callister Harmon. <music>